If you have your Bibles, we're ready for Mark chapter 14 today. We are um, in the Passion Week of Christ as we study the Bible. Um, we are in the, the Passion Week. The last um, seven days of Jesus' life as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. As we come to verse 14, or chapter 14, we are entering now a period of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Jesus goes, and for me personally, I think one of the most emotional um, connections that I have in the scriptures is this scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to read today and study and see how, how Jesus is, um, was affected by these things. Thank you. How he was affected and how it says that Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. That, it, that God sent an angel into the Garden of Gethsemane to minister and, and to help Jesus through this time of stress. And it's kind of a, a little bit of a heavy section there, but it's where we are today. And it's, it's important that we, we kind of try to soak it in the gratitude or the gravity of, of what Jesus did as he paid for your sins and my sins upon the cross. I had this little thing. It went with my announcements and I, uh, I forgot it. So I'm going to I'm going to share it now. It's kind of like one of those uh, who's on first. What's on second? Who, who's on third? I don't know. Okay, I wasn't sure. But who's on first? I don't know who's on third. There we go. So, and, and, and this is in the context of, of, of asking you guys' help as we go to build this new building. And as we try to pull our resources here together to, to build something for God, to become a lighthouse in our community. And so, this is called Everybody, Somebody, Anybody, and Nobody. And I don't know which one is playing what bass, so... This is a little story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about, about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. So don't be nobody, am anybody, somebody... Yeah, we're going to post that on the church. You know, I had this uh, I had this vision. I don't know why this is totally rabbit trails now, you guys. And we're not going to have too many time for too many rabbit trails today. But, you know, I was I, I was I was praying last night and, and I actually had to get up because I have this this plaque over the front door, of the entryway of my house and take a look at it. But um, when you first walk into the new church, I want there to be something that's there. That's like that. I don't know. It's just like the. And it's a scripture and in asking God, what, what is that scripture? And what is that thing that's just going to like, just give God glory as, as, as we build this new building. And so, um, not really sure yet, but the one I like right now is it, it as you walk in, it says great is the Lord and, and greatly to be praised. And so there's that scripture, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And the other one is great is thy faithfulness. And just this thing, great is thy faithfulness as you come into the foyer. So anyways, rabbit trail, let's get back to Mark. Let's begin in verse number 27. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. Use your phone or Toby can get you a Bible. We have some loaner Bibles if you need one. You can raise your hand or you can just walk back there and Toby will give you one. That way you guys know I'm not teaching heresy. Not, not, not that having a Bible in your lap is going to fix that, but at least you'll know uh, what I'm reading out of. I read out of the New King James if you're using your phone so you can follow along. In verse 27, it says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go up before you to Galilee. 
And so Jesus here is getting ready to enter. Verse 26 ends and it says, Arise, let us go from here. And that gets us to 27. Jesus and the disciples had been in the upper room. They left the upper room. They would have passed through the the Kidron Valley on the south side of the temple there into the Kidron Valley, down one side where Mount Hermon, where the, the Temple Mount is, and up the other side to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane would have been. And so Jesus would have made this path. They would have ended in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus would have gathered with his 12 disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane on the last night. He, he was separated James, John, and Peter, and Peter, James, and John, and, and he went away and he began to pray. And Jesus was in great distress as the night went on. As the night got late, uh, Judas Iscariot with 600 soldiers shows up and betrays Jesus somewhere late in the night, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. They take Jesus immediately to a series of illegal trials throughout the night, and by the next morning at 9 o'clock a.m., he's on the cross. So at 11 o'clock, the, the soldiers come and they, they arrest Jesus and then they take him to Caiaphas's house and, and, then, and then a trial before Annas and then back to Caiaphas and then they send him to Pilate and Pilate is there and then Pilate says, let Herod deal with him and, and Pilate sends him to Herod and then Herod says, that's not my decision, send him back to Pilate and he ends up back at Pilate. All of these trials, illegal, happen in the middle of the night And by early the next morning, sometime 6, 7 a.m. in the morning, they begin to beat Jesus very brutally and and nail him to a cross. And he carries that cross down a famous street called the Via Dolorosa from a place called the Praetorium, um, where the Roman guard and the Roman presence was there in the Jewish quarter, the Temple Mount, where Solomon's temple was on the northwest corner would be this area that was controlled by the Romans. And it was called the Antonio Fortress. And at the bottom of the Antonio Fortress is an area called the Praetorium, which the actual ground of the Praetorium is still there today. And I've stood on it. And it's very emotional to be there because you know that this was the place that, that Jesus would have been scourged and beaten before he was, he was to carry his cross from the Praetorium to Calvary, where he would die on a cross down that infamous road called the Via Dolorosa. So this is the very beginning of this story of the events of this night. So from where we are now until the until Jesus dies on the cross is between, say, 10 p.m. and nine o'clock the next morning. And the first thing I want you just to notice really quickly is that Jesus fulfills hundreds of prophecies in his life, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, um, over 400 that, that Jesus fulfills in his death. And and and. You know, if you go to Israel today and you find an Orthodox Jew and you say, um, you don't receive Jesus as your Messiah, right? And of course not. We don't, we don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. We're still waiting on the Messiah. And they believe the Bible from, from Genesis to Malachi, but nothing in the New Testament. They say, well, how will you know when Messiah comes? And, and, and typically the answer you'll get is that Messiah will bring peace. But it's interesting to me in talking to some of the rabbis, you know, how do they reconcile the, the 400 prophecies that, that, that Messiah must fulfill? We could take the very basic, simple ones that Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so for a Jew today who's waiting on Messiah, do you, do you believe and understand that he has to be born in Bethlehem? And, and all of these prophecies have to be fulfilled in this one guy for him to be the Messiah? And yet in Jesus, some mathematician did, did a, a, a math problem of what was the likelihood that one person could fulfill all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life and his death. 
And they said it would be like if you took a silver dollar and you covered the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. And you painted one red and somewhere it was, it was dropped in some part in the state of Texas. And then you put somebody with a blindfold and, and they had to go through the state of Texas and pull out one silver dollar. The chance that they would pull out the one painted red is the same mathematical chance that one person could fulfill all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. And so this is just another one. This is one's kind of obscure because as Jesus tells them that it was prophesied, reminds them that it was prophesied that they would be scattered. In verse 28 or verse 29, it says, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yes, I will not be. So Peter, you got to love him. Jesus prophesies that, that they're going to stumble and they're going to walk. And Peter sticks his chest out, he probably pounded it a couple times. Maybe he did the... Who knows? But he said, not me. I I won't be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then Peter doubles down. But he spoke more vehemently. Peter did and pounded his chest even harder. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Even the other disciples then started to chime in and said, Lord, we won't deny you. We will follow you to death. And you know what? I think that Peter was probably very sincere in this moment. You guys ever had a moment like that? Lord, hopefully it was your only moment like that wasn't, Lord, if I just get through this night, I'll never do it again. (laughs) Have moments like that. Well, maybe we've had some moments that um, where we're we're serious and we're crying out. We're saying, God, I want to serve you. I want to, you know, I love you. I want to do right. I want to, I want to get, I want to get separation from that sin in my life. I want to, I want to be strong. I want to have victory over these things that I've been struggling with. Jesus, I want to serve you. I want to be used in ministry. I want to tell other people about Jesus. I want to live my life unashamed of the gospel. And then yet we find our, find ourselves at times, just like Peter, who probably meant well, but, but struggled, struggled to live that out. And one of the things that, that, you know, we're going to see with Peter through this whole story, you follow Peter, there's this, there's this spiritual equivalence that we're going to see in this story. The next thing that's going to happen is Peter's supposed to be praying and he's sleeping. Jesus tells him that the, the, the flesh is, is weak, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then Peter scatters, just like Jesus prophesies. And then he starts following Jesus from a distance, which is, which is key. We'll talk about that when we get there. Because so many of us, we, we struggle and we have this heartfelt, sincere cry outs at moments in church and you come and, and then you, and then you're, you Sunday, you're like this. And on Monday it, it's fallen apart already. And, and, and yet we, we follow Jesus at a distance as Peter did. And then we're warming ourselves. Peter's warming himself by the enemy's fires. And so many times in our lives, we're warming ourselves by the world's fires. And you know what that could mean. And hanging out with people in places where you, you, you know, it has nothing to do with your life and your, your walk with Christ. And it's not conducive to growing or, or doing anything good. And, and, and we continue to struggle. And so being close to Jesus, being on fire for Jesus, that's what that song that we sang about, was living our lives in such a way that we stay connected to Jesus. We stay plugged in every day of our lives to Jesus through prayer, through reading the word, through, through fellowship, communing, being together in church. And then it goes on and he says, in verse 32, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So they had left the upper room and made that trek that I told you. And now they're in this garden. Jesus probably had a wealthy friend who owned a garden on Gethsemane. These would have been private. 
Gethsemane is, it means olive press. And there were actually businesses where they would, they would press the olives and the oil that came from the olives was, was the value in the olives. And so Jesus would have had there a, a friend or somebody that would let him use his garden often, a place where Jesus would often go. When you go to Israel today, and if you go, we're going to be going in, in 2018. So, so mark that on your calendar and start saving now. Life-changing trip to go to Israel and the Holy Land. We just had five people from here that, that we went a couple months ago. And one of the highlights of the trip is being in the Garden of Gethsemane. I have a picture of myself kneeling with my hands raised in the Garden of Gethsemane because it says here that Jesus knelt and prayed. So who knows? Was I in the area? Was I in the place? You know, we don't worship a place. We worship a risen Savior. But it was cool to be there. It was cool to be in the place. And one of the things that's really cool about the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is, is these two little hills there. One of them is very famous where the Dome of the Rock is today. That's the Temple Mount or on Mount Hermon. So you leave the east side of where the Dome of the Rock is and where the, the rebuilt Jewish temple will go next door. And you head east, and it's just this little valley. There used to be a Kidron there, a brook with running water, that there's no more water running in it today. That, then you come up the other side, and it's the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was. And along the Mount of Olives, all the ancient olive trees have been destroyed over the years. And, and the, the interesting thing is that there's eight today that date back to the time of Jesus, that are 2,000-year-old olive trees. They're, they're fenced in now. They're protected. There's a church that was built right next to them, um, Church of the Nations. And um, the, these eight olive trees, of all the trees that are there, now there's a bunch of olive trees that are back that are newer, but, but these ones are, eight, are the eight trees. Our guide told us while we were there. They, they, they stopped producing olives sometime after, like the, in the first century, second century. Then, for 1,900 years, these trees were alive, but they sat dormant and didn't bear any fruit. And they said, miraculously, for the first time, these eight olive trees there on the Mount of Olives began to bear olives and, and, and bloom again in 1948, the year that Israel became a nation. And so, being there in that place, maybe those eight olive trees are, are there and preserved by God, because that is the actual Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would have been. And it's fun. It's just fun to go there. It's fun to be in that place and see that and know the, the, the event that took place that we're about to read about in this garden. And it says in verse 33, And he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be troubled, deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little farther, and he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it be possible, that hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came, and he found them sleeping. He said, Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away, and he prayed, and he spoke the same words. And when he had returned, he found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. There's three words. Go back to verse 33. I just read the section to catch it in context, but I want to break it down a little bit. In verse 33, starting in verse 33, there's three words that, that Jesus uses of himself to describe his condition that he was in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. And it says that he was deeply distressed. He was troubled and he was exceedingly sorrowful even to death. The other gospels add two more points to, to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he sweat as it were great drops of blood. 
Raise your hand the last time you've been so stressed out that blood, that you began to sweat blood, literally. Nobody? The Bible says that Jesus was so, so perplexed that God had to send an angel into the garden to minister to Jesus. How would you like to be that angel that day? You know, you wake up normally, normal day, you wake up, you go to your inbox, you check your assignments, and it's like, go to Matt and Rachel's wedding and bless it, because it should be tons of joy, and you get to go and be a part of that. And, you know, uh, Pastor Chris is about to get in a car accident. Go and make him make a left on, uh, on first. And, and these little different things. And you wake up that morning, and this angel, and he goes to his inbox, and it says, go to the Garden of Gethsemane and minister to my son. Minister to your creator. Because Jesus the, would have created and, and, and the God of heaven and the creator of all things. And today, that day, the angel of the Lord had to come and minister to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Jesus prayed. And what was he praying for? He was praying that this cup would pass from him. This, this amazing thing that he was about to go through on the cross, he said, Father, he said, if there's any other way that people can be saved, if there's any other way to build a bridge between God and man, let's go with plan B. If there's any other way that, that, that the people of Tooele Springs can spend eternity in heaven, then God, let's go with that plan. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And guess what? There was no plan B. The only plan of salvation that exists, that's valid for your salvation and for mine, is that Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who was sinless, who was both God and man, would die on a cross and shed his innocent blood that if you receive it by faith, it will wash away your sins. And thereby, when God looks at you one day, he's not going to see you or your sins. He's going to see his son and he's going to welcome you into the kingdom of God. And there was no other way. You know, there's every kind of religion in the world and every kind of ism and schism and belief. And, you know, I had one guy ask me one time, Pastor Chris, how do you know everybody else is wrong? And you're right. And I said, well, the one thing I do know is that there's only one way that, that provides forgiveness of your sins. And that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if there's any other way, let it be done. Because he did not want to face what he was about to face. The Bible said that he was beat, his face was beaten beyond visage. He was marred beyond visage, and you couldn't recognize him as a man. You ever seen anybody that, was, that had some serious head trauma to their face? And they're swelling. I, I was in the hospital one time. It was my neighbor, actually. And I was on a pastoral call in the hospital. And a guy, he got hit in the face with a baseball bat. And the bat hit him square on his face. But it only hit one side of his face. And he almost had like a line down the middle of his face. And this side of his face was completely swollen and black and blue and a, and a deep purple you've ever seen. And, and just, I mean, if, if that's all it was, I, I, for the first time I looked at him and I, I could kind of understand when the Bible says that Jesus was marred beyond vision, visage and he was beaten so badly that you couldn't recognize him as a man. And you, you add to that cuts and scrapes and, and all the things that, that went on. It says they ripped his beard from his face. They put a bag on his head and they punched him. And then they put their hands out and they said, okay, prophesy as they mocked him and spit on him. Which one of these hands punched you? And then they put a bag on his head again and then they take turns and then showing him their hands. They took a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and that didn't satisfy him. So they, they took their clubs and they, they beat it down good on his head. And Jesus, who's getting ready to face this, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Bible says he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He's praying three times that, that this cup would pass from him and he wouldn't have to face this death on the cross if there's any other way to build a bridge between man and God. If there's any other way for people to get saved or go to heaven, Jesus says, let's, let's go with that plan. And there's no other plan. 
And he, but he says he submits himself and he says, as you and I should say in every one of our prayers, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You know the reality of what Jesus faced here? I want to tell you, without a doubt, and I don't want to demean the physical death that Jesus paid on a cross because it was real. He didn't use any God powers to, to protect himself and not face it as any other man would have to face it. And the Bible describes it as the worst, worst thing, tragedy beating in human history ever before, ever since. No man would face ever physically what Jesus went through. And I don't mean to demean that, but I want to tell you the reality of why Jesus was the way he was in the garden had nothing to do with the physical death. There was one factor that Jesus was that stressed out about. Those three words, troubled, stressed, even to the point of death. This feeling that Jesus had, he said, could literally kill him. It could kill him. He said, I'm that. It physically could make his body not function to where he would die, he said. And, and, and you know what it was? There was one thing that Jesus understood that I wish we could just get a little glimpse of in our lives. The one thing that Jesus was afraid of, and, and I hate to use these terms, you guys, afraid and all these things. Got to be careful what I say about Jesus' condition in the garden. But for our, our terms, the one thing that Jesus was so afraid of and stressed out about was this little period in human history where the Father was going to pour His wrath out upon Him and there was going to be a, a, a temporary separation between the Son and the Father. And that's what Jesus was stressed about. That's what completely wrecked Jesus that day in the garden was he, he didn't want to face, even for a fraction of a second, separation with the Father. And yet we, we were so blasé about our relationship with God and our walking with the Lord and, and, and whether we even know the Lord or not. And yet Jesus understood something that caused him to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, so much so that God sent an angel to his side that he was, he was almost to the point of death over it, over the separation between him and the Father. And I want to encourage you and me in my life that, you know, we, 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 I wish we just had a piece of that. Just a piece of that so that we, we wouldn't want. We would be as scared as Jesus was of the possibility of living eternity without the Father, of living eternity without God. You know what hell is? What's the description of hell? Hell is separation from God. It's eternal separation from God. That, that's the definition of hell. And sure, there's, there's plenty of characteristics and descriptions of what hell is going to be like. But the bottom line, what hell is, is eternal separation from God. Who does God send to hell? Nobody. God don't send nobody to hell. He gave his son to die on a cross so that you didn't have to go to hell. It says that you've got to walk through the blood of Jesus Christ to get to hell. And he's done everything in his power to keep you from hell. And at some point, all he's going to do is he's going he's to um, honor your request. And when you say, no, God, no, God, no, God, no, God, no, Jesus, no, stay out. I don't want nothing to do with it. There, there reaches a point. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When this work of God's Holy Spirit, who's calling you and speaking to you about coming to Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, when you said no to the Holy Spirit so many times in your life, there reaches a point where God honors your request and, and he gives you what you've asked for. And that's eternal separation from the Father through all of eternity. And that's hell. And that little taste of that separation is what Jesus was going through here in the garden. And then it goes on. And it says, let's pick it up in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you to take this cup away from me. So, so Jesus said, Lord, we, everything's possible for you. It, we know that you can take this cup away from you. 
but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Did the Father take the cup away from Jesus? He didn't. He drank of that cup. And I, li- I like the way that Jesus addresses, the, addresses God in this prayer in this time. He addresses him as Abba, Father. We, we, we looked at this last week in Romans chapter 8, that God describes himself to you and me as an Abba, a Daddy. It's, it's this intimacy between us and God. And yeah, we got this big, scary God who created the heavens and the earth and, you know, who, who with the flick of his finger sets the, the, the galaxies and the Milky Way into orbit and everything where it's supposed to be. And yet he says when, when describing himself to you and me, he uses this word Abba. That's just, that's intimacy. That's a relationship that God wants for you. And Jesus understood that and said, Abba, Father, Daddy, help. You know, sometimes in prayer, the most spiritual prayer you can pray is, Dad, help. Dad, I need you. And Jesus there in this intimacy prays, Abba, Father. And it goes on in verse 37. He came and he found them sleeping. He said, Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Verse 41, it says, Then he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so Jesus had spent a lot of time saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, Jesus's hour had come. This was the hour that he was, that he was speaking of through his ministry. And it was time that, that he would face what he was born to do and what was determined since the beginning of human history that Jesus would die on the cross. And in verse 42 or 43, it says, And immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. And now his betrayers had given them a signal. Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they, and they laid their hands on him and took him. And so Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus. Maybe he was mad that he wasn't James, Peter, and John and one of the three in the inner circle. Again, James, Peter, and John were always the ones that were the closest to Jesus. They were, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus called three of the twelve and he separated them unto himself and and they went in. Some people think that James, Peter, and John, they were like the, the real holy spiritual guys of the bunch that, you know, Jesus always kept at his back and near him because they had his back. And they were, you know, they were the ones that were praying and watching for him and, you know... Gail Irwin says that that wasn't the case at all. Peter, James, and John, that was the remedial class. They were the ones that, that he couldn't trust not to shoot spit wads at each other for five minutes. He would always keep them really close to him everywhere he went. And I kind of like that, that interpretation better. It fits me better, that's for sure. You know, Jesus said, those that I've put in, the Father has put in my hands, of these I've lost none. And I think sometimes for those of us, maybe they're like bouncing beans and, you know, more likely to jump out of Jesus's hands. He has to keep us a little bit closer. And so Jesus here, he keeps these, these guys close. And, and, and Judas, somewhere along the, along the path, he went south. Somewhere along the line, he, um, 
I don't know what it was. You know, Judas is, is very interesting because, you know, when you get into this entire debate of once saved, always saved, can you lose your salvation? You know, Judas is, is such a, a point that everybody argues. Well, Judas, you know, never knew Jesus. He never was saved and he didn't lose his salvation because without a doubt, Judas Iscariot went to hell. You know, not too many things in the Bible, they tell us that. We just kind of have to guess or be sure we, you know, not, not totally. And then the Bible says we're not, we're not the, the judge of anybody's salvation anyways. You don't, you don't know where anybody went for sure. You don't know that they didn't give their life to Jesus at some point or in the end of their life. But with Judas, there's no question. Jesus said of Judas, it would be better for him if he were not born than, what's, you know, than, than his eternity. And, 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 and yet, G- Judas is just, he walked with Jesus for three years. His heart never never got saved, never turned to him. And he got to the point where he betrayed Jesus. And here he comes and he betrays him with a kiss. In the other gospel, Jesus says to Judas, Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? And as he comes in the garden, you know, the Bible says about Jesus that he has no form or comeliness about him that we should, we should desire him. It says that in Isaiah 52, 53. So basically Jesus was just he, he would have been a normal guy of his day. He would have, you know, been born into a Jewish family. If, you know, he probably would have been average height. He probably would have kept the average dress and beard and hairstyle of what was, what was common in that day. He would have wore the same stuff. He didn't, you know, he didn't have a, he wasn't like this Superman God. He wasn't like Rico Suave, the most handsome person that ever lived in the world with this beautiful flowing hair because he was Jesus. If that was the case, then, you know, Judas wouldn't have had to go and kiss him. Judas would have said, hey, just go get the pretty one. And they could have just went and arrested the pretty one. He wasn't 10 feet tall. Judas would have said, hey, just go get the tall one. He didn't float when he walked along the earth. You know, it just, Judas would have said, hey, just go get the one that floats. He didn't talk with some ohm voice oh, of God as he spoke. Jesus, Judas would have said, hey, just go get the one with the freaky weird voice. He's the, he's the one you're looking for. It was dark in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. Maybe, maybe you know, Judas went and, and just had to identify him because they wouldn't have been able to pick him out of a crowd just based on who, what he looked like. In verse 48, and then Jesus answered and said to them, have, has you, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scripture might be fulfilled, another prophecy that's fulfilled on this night. And they all forsook him and fled. So, so what Jesus prophesied earlier that the disciples would flee comes true. And now a certain man followed. Did we miss a section of Peter cutting off his ear? We did. I want to cover that. In 46, it says, Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and stuck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus answered and said to them, Has you come out? So this this gospel doesn't tell us. Mark's gospel doesn't tell us who cut off the ear. We all know it to be. We all know it to be. Peter. So Peter was the one who, who pulled his sword. He's the same one who said, Lord, I'll die for you. And we always give Peter a hard time, like a bull in a china closet. And that's kind of how he was. You remember when him and John were running to the tomb? And they were real competitive because in John's gospel, he tells us like three times that he outran Peter to the tomb. Like he wants you to know that he was faster than Peter to get to the tomb. Like, well, Peter was traditionally, the tradition tells us Peter was a big guy anyways. So I don't know what John's bragging about. He beat, you know, a big guy on a, on a foot race. Big deal. You know, he didn't out bench press him. That'd be a different story. But Peter, Peter just being this, you know, bull in a china closet, he pulls his sword out. And, and, and the reality is, in that moment, he's going to give his life for Christ. He's, he's all in right there. 
Because there's, there's Roman soldiers. There's a ton of Roman soldiers. He's a fisherman. What does he even have a sword for? But he did. Interesting thing. He carried a sword. He had a sword. He pulls out his sword. And, and, and he's, he's, he's not Zorro. Like he didn't carve a pea in his chest when he was done cutting his ear off. He went, to, he went to split this guy's wig right down between his eyes. And Malchus dodged it. And the sword bounced off the side of his head and cut his ear clean off. And, and, and Jesus says to Peter, and it's not recorded here. Jesus says in the other gospel, it says at this moment, Jesus picked the ear up and he healed it. And when he put the ear on, he told Peter, he said, Peter, put your sword away. Nobody takes my life. I give it freely. There's not a lack of power. There was no lack of power in the Garden of Gethsemane. The other gospel tells us when the crowd first got there and they began to speak to Jesus, that when Jesus first spoke, the entire crowd fell over backwards on the ground. The only time in the Bible we see any kind of slain in the spirit, and it wasn't a good thing. All these people fell over in the Garden of Gethsemane as they came to Jesus. They got back up. Then Peter pulls out his sword. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Nobody takes my life. In the other gospel, in, in here, not recorded in Mark's gospel, tells us that at this point, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I could call 72,000 angels to my side right now. Six legions of angels. Twelve legions of angels, six thousand a legion, seventy-two thousand angels. One angel of the Lord in one night, in a story in the book of Kings, goes through and wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. One angel, 185,000 human soldiers. One angel, one, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, zero. So, so it was, it was, a, it was a power. That, that Jesus said, Peter, it's not a lack of power. I could call thousands of angels to my side right now. I don't lack power. Put your sword away. Nobody, nobody's taking my life. That's why when they ask, you know, people wanted to argue, and you've heard dumb arguments over the years. Was it the Jews who killed Jesus or the Romans that are guilty for the death of Jesus? Who killed Jesus? I remember I had this one JW missionary, uh, door-to-door knocker guy at my house one day, and I told him, I was, we were talking about this, and I said, you know, I said, I said, man, you killed Jesus. And he looked at me, he's like, he was kind of old too. And he's like, man, I wasn't even there. <laughs> like, oh, well, you're all look old enough, but I understand you weren't there. That, that's not what I'm saying. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. You killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. Jesus died. Nobody took Jesus's life. Jesus gave his life to pay for your sins and my sins. Jesus came to die on a cross to, to, to create a relationship between man and God. And, and, and for that reason, you know, it's the sin of mankind that put Jesus on the cross. Nobody, you know, the Jews aren't Jesus killers. The Romans aren't Jesus killers. Jesus came to die and gave his life freely. And, and the other interesting thing about this last miracle is that the last miracle Jesus did before the cross was to heal the ear and heal a person who was wounded by one of his disciples. You know, I think sometimes maybe Jesus has to go behind you and I as his disciples today and clean up some of our messes and maybe heal some of the years we've cut off. I know I've probably cut off a few in my days, maybe sometimes meaning to, maybe sometimes not meaning to. Sometimes we take the sword. You know, we talk about people who, and these aren't Christians, they call themselves Christians, but they have nothing to do with the heart of God. And they're constantly cutting people. And they stand on street corners and you know, with signs that say, God hates fags. I promise you, Jesus wouldn't act that way. But, but it cuts. 
And oftentimes, you know, even in our lives, maybe meaningful, meaning to or not, that we, we, we can hurt people. And one, one, of the, one of the biggest enemies of the gospel is, is Christian people who don't live their lives like Christian people. They profess to be Christian, but as the people around them see, see their lives, there's nothing Christian about their lives. There's nothing different about their lives. Now, now those people have an excuse, and they're going to use that as a number one excuse, but at the end of the day, it's not going to hold up in court. When they stand before God, they're not going to say, well, I didn't serve you or know you because my neighbor was a hypocrite. It's not going to hold up. When the reality is the bottom line of, of not serving God for people is, is the sin that's in their heart and not running to, wanting to repent. They love their sin. They love their darkness. They don't want to come to the light. But definitely as Christians, I think we just want to have a level of, you know, understanding that, that we, we are to be salt and light. We're, we're just best we can represent and, and be an example and be careful of whose ears we're cutting off because Jesus has to go behind us and, and heal ears of, of, of people that his disciples cut off. And so Peter cuts off the ear. Jesus heals it, tells him to put away his sword. That brings us to 51. We get this little strange kind of thing recorded here for us by the Holy Spirit in, in verse 51 about this boy. We think this boy is uh, John Mark, the author of this gospel. And you ask yourself, like, what was this guy doing? Naked in the garden of Gethsemane with a sheet wrapped around him. It says in verse 51, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid a hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, I don't know if that has to do anything with the story. I don't know why that's in there or why that's important. But for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit chose to record it. Maybe because this is John Mark telling his own story. And, and you know, what John Mark, probably what happened here, Judas grabbed and he went and somewhere he rendezvoused with these 600 soldiers with the intention of helping them find Jesus and identifying Jesus so they could arrest him. And so as the soldiers went, one of the places where Jesus hung out was at John Mark's mom's house. John's Mark was John Mark, the author of this gospel. His mom was a player in Acts chapter 12 when they're gathered in, in, in a house praying for Peter. They're at John Mark's house. They're at his, his mom's house. So maybe Judas' first stop was at John Mark's house, and he heard the commotion, and they're knocking on the door and, and looking for Jesus, and wanting to get to Jesus before the other, before the soldiers get there. He's in bed. He just takes the sheet that he's that's that's on him. He wraps it around him, and he and he and he heads up to the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to get a warning message to Jesus. Then they find him. They grab the sheet, and he takes off running naked. I was going to say this was the first streaker in the Bible. But actually, it's not the first streaker in the Bible. That's kind of common in the Bible. I don't know. Joseph did the same thing when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. She grabbed his, his dress and he took off naked, running from her. Maybe this was the first toga party in the Bible, though, because he, he had this toga thing on this sheet. So I don't know, but it's there recorded for us. And then in verse 53, it says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him... There were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and sat with the servants and warmed himself by the fire. You guys highlight, you mark in your Bible. If you don't, you're going to start today. Verse 54, I want you to underline, highlight, followed him at a distance. And then the second part of that, warmed himself at the fire. So again, I, this, is, this is a whole sermon we could preach right here. This, this thing will preach itself. You don't want to follow Jesus at a distance. Because, because I guarantee you want a recipe for disaster in your life. You want to struggle with sin. You want to struggle with this roller coaster life of Christianity. Then follow Jesus at a distance. 
Because you're going to lack, you're going to miss the things that God intended of, of intimacy and joy and struggle in your life as we follow Jesus at a distance. And, and, and the only way you're going to walk away from Jesus is you have to get a, a distance away from him first before you can fall away. And if you stay close to Jesus, you never have to worry about that. You never have to worry about following him at a distance. And so here, Peter following at a distance is his first mistake. And then he goes and he warms himself at the enemy's fire. And, we, and then he goes on. And it says in verse 55, Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. So they have these prepaid um, pre kind of set up false witnesses at these illegal trials that Jesus was going to go through. And they're coming through and they're having to, they, they can't even get their lies straight. You know, get, getting lying together and being it, having it in, in, in working out is very difficult. You hear about, there was four girls and they, they were driving somewhere and they were supposed to be home at a certain time. They were way past curfew, totally late, totally busted. They pull in the driveway and dad's like, where have you guys been? You're so late. You guys are in such big trouble. They're like, no, we really, we got a flat tire. He's like, oh, okay. No, no worries. I didn't know. You know, come on in. Takes them in the house, puts them in four different rooms and gives them all a piece of paper. He says, I want to know what tire it was and where you were when it happened. No way that they're going to collaborate those lies. And that's what they're doing here. They're trying to collaborate these lies against Jesus and they just, they can't even lie, right? Because none of those things are true. You know, Jesus went through three trials from the Jews and three trials from the Romans. The Romans found Jesus innocent three times, and the Jews who were corrupt and had a lot to lose, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, Caiaphas made a lot of money by ripping people off in the temple. He sold goods there. He was in charge of the temple worship. He was very wealthy, and he had a business that was making tons of money based on what was happening in the temple, in the Jewish temple. And Jesus went in twice and overturned his money tables and drove out the people and was, was an affront to the business of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest, who was supposed to be the spiritual leader in Israel of God's people, because he was corrupt, wanted, wanted to see Jesus die because Jesus was affecting his finances. And, and so, in verse 57, it says, or verse 59, but even then did their testimonies not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What does these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and he answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, everybody with me, verse 62, I am, I am. You know, oftentimes people will say Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be the Christ or the Messiah. You can take him right here and show him. There's, there's m many places, four or five in the Gospel of John alone. But, but here's one of them, one of the most powerful places where very clearly Jesus is saying, I am God. I am um, the Messiah. I am clearly the Christ. 
And he brings their attention as he says this, as he goes on in verse 62, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That is almost a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7. Something that Caiaphas and the high priests and the Jews that were trying Jesus would have been very familiar with is that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 that says that Messiah would come in this exact way that Jesus described, making himself the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, unequivocally, undoubtedly saying that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he was God. This statement, I am, and we we don't have time today to to go through all the details, but we have on, on several times already. But this, this I am, the same I am when, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, and they picked up rocks to stone Jesus. Why did they pick up rocks? Why were they going to try to kill him right there? Because they understood very clearly that when Jesus said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, that he was claiming deity. That he was claiming to be the very same God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And, and, the, and when Moses said to God in the discussion in the burning bush, and he said, who, when, when I go to Egypt and I talk to Pharaoh and I, tell, and I ask Pharaoh, or I tell Pharaoh that you sent me, they're going to say, well, what is the name of this God? What do I tell him? And God said to, to Moses, when Moses asked him, what is your name? God said, I am. Ego ami. It's the same thing that Jesus quoted. Before Abraham was, ego ami. I am. Same thing he says here. To, to the Sanhedrin, and they understood exactly what he was claiming when he said, I am. And in verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes, and he said, what further need do we have of witness? He said, we don't need these witnesses anymore. The witnesses were blowing it. No doubt he was sweating. They had this trumped-up charges, this case going on. His false witnesses weren't getting the job done. Then he says, forget it. We don't even need these witnesses. He's already claimed himself to be God. That's blasphemy. And he tore his high clothes. Coincidentally, we make a big deal in this story of Jesus' crucifixion that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. But this, here's another rent that we don't, we don't highlight very often. The high priest tore his clothes. The Bible only says that in the Levitical law, there's only one reason that a high priest would tear his clothes, would rent his clothes, and that was the death of the high priest. And so this signifies here the death and, and the end of the Levitical priesthood. The same thing that the veil of the temple being rent into signified at the death of Jesus. That no longer do we need or live under a, a dispensation, under a period where we need a Levitical priesthood. You don't need a priest. You don't need a priest to go to God, to atone for your sins, to make the sign of the cross over you or anything else. Drip holy water on you. You have direct access to the Father And we have it over and over again here at the death of Jesus Christ that now there's no mediator other than Jesus himself between God and man. And then it goes on. We're almost done, you guys. Verse 64, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him in deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him. And say to him, prophesy. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. Can you imagine if people are spitting on your face? And you're very capable of just destroying them. Like, no problem, you know. And, and yet, for, for a greater cause and, and in humility and because of love, you take it. You know, Jesus could have said the word and they could have turned into a pillar of salt. And, you know, you think, what, what is the absolute 
most disrespectful thing that you can do to another human being? Spit on their face. And he stood there while they spit on his face, while they opened the palms of their hand, because that's more disrespectful than punching somebody. I can punch somebody, but if I really want to disrespect them, I'll open hand slap them. They spit on his face. They open hand slap him. And it's just going to get, get worse from here. And, and Jesus took this so that he could pave a way for you and I to get to heaven. And it says in verse 66, And now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, You were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know you nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is the one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said, said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean and your speech shows it. So he would have had a certain accent. You know, we have that here in the United States, right? You want me to give you a cool? Or y'all, or, you know, sometimes you could tell by somebody's speech if they're from New York or from Texas or North Carolina or, you know, Utah. We don't have an accent, do we? We just have a bunch of people with a bunch of funny names. But we, we don't really have an accent. But, you know, certain accents betray you. And so Peter had one of those accents, and they, they knew it. But he denied it again. And the little girl who stood by him said to Peter, Surely, oh, verse 71. Then he began to curse and swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. This is, this is this cursing here. Now, Peter was a sailor, so I'm sure he knew how to curse with the best of them. But, but this curse here is, is more of a, like, I'll be go to hell. I'll be damned. I'll be damned if I know the guy. And so, so he said this in such a way that he said, I will go to hell, you know, if I know him. So the, the type of cursing is, is so vehement and so strong at this point that he's vehemently denying that he even knows Jesus, even to the point of, of eternal damnation on himself, if he does. And then he began, on verse uh, 72, and a second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he went about and he wept, the Bible says, bitterly. You know, the other gospel tells us that at this moment, as Peter denies the third time, the rooster crows, the trial was just ending, the first one of Caiaphas, and he was getting ready, Jesus was getting ready to be led out to, um, to the second part of the trial, and that they made eye contact. And at this point, as they made eye contact, you, you think, what did Jesus look like? What did Jesus say to him? You think he just gave him the dirtiest look you've ever seen, like, you're such a loser, I knew you would. I don't think so, right? Just just like when, when, when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time in the garden and God shows up and the Bible doesn't give us intonation. It just says, God says to Adam and Eve, Adam, where art thou? And we read into that sometime like the voice of an arresting officer. Adam, where are you? What have you done? But I don't think that was the voice of God or the heart of God. I don't think that's consistent with God or his nature or his heart. He was probably heartbroken. He said, Adam, where are you? Adam, what have you done, man? And that day, Jesus looked at Peter in the garden. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that kind of pain and just, just disappointment in yourself. And, and Jesus looked at him that day across, and Jesus didn't say nothing to him. He just knew. Conviction of the Holy Spirit set in. It says he began to weep bitterly. 
as he just repented and just began to break. And, you know, he actually went away, Peter does, and um, kind of just feels like he blew it and he's done. And thank God Jesus shows up and said, hey, it's never too late, Peter. There's always a second chance. And God, God's always got a plan for your life, and he can execute that plan in your life no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, no matter how bad you've betrayed or turned your heart on Jesus no matter how bad you've cursed him or anything else, that there's an opportunity for you to come home, come home to Jesus. Amen? Let's stand. Let's have the worship team come up, close us in a song. Never too late to come home. It's always too soon to quit. So I just want to encourage you guys. I probably got you guys all jammed up back here, huh? Let me move that over. Turn the lights off. So I just want to, uh, let's close in a song. And, and, you know, maybe there's something going on in your life. And maybe there's some regret. Maybe there's some hurt. Maybe there's some bitterness. Uh, maybe you've never met the Lord Jesus Christ or you've never asked Jesus Christ in your heart to be your Lord and Savior. No matter where you are or however you've come today, that, that term I am, it literally means I am the becoming one. And the, in the very nature of God, he, he loves each one of his people so much. He loves each one of us so much that he understands that we all have different needs. And, and if he was just the Lord, our healer, or the Lord, our provider, or whatever they are, we'd miss so many. And so he, he is the becoming one. I am the becoming one. I become and meet the need that you have. And for each one of us today, that need is different. And, and I want each one of you to have your needs met as you, as you come to this place and before you leave today. And, and I think for, for all of us, I think the, the number one need that we all have is redemption. And, and we, don't want to, we don't want to let anybody leave without at least giving you the opportunity. And you, you can respond or you can not. That's, that's, that's your choice. And, and whatever you choose today, God's going to honor. And, and, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And it's just a simple prayer. And there's no magic in the words. There's only magic in what you decide today. If you're going to receive and accept Jesus in your life as your personal Lord and Savior. Or you're going to wait till tomorrow one more time. But we definitely want to give you that opportunity today. And we don't want you to leave here without it. And then for those of you, you're born again. You're, you're Christian. You love Jesus. You have Jesus in your life. And, and I want to encourage you guys just in, in growing and stepping out and being on fire. And in today, dedicating and rededicating and, and, and saying to the Lord, I want to be intimate. I want to be close to you. I want to be on fire today. Amen. Amen. Will you guys pray with me as we pray together? Dear Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I realize and admit that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And the only way is what happened on the cross. So come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk closer and more on fire every day of my life. Bless me. And use me to bless others. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. If anybody would like individual prayer, we would uh, welcome you to come up and uh, pray with us. And then again, I want to invite you guys Monday night, 6 o'clock for prayer. Wednesday night, 645 for food and Bible study. God bless you guys.